apology to victims of the Lynn Valley stabbing spree. This is the hope I've got that's going to help uh, the Lynn Valley community to start moving a bit forward. How Yannick Bandago explains his actions leading up to that deadly day. Plus, putting a price on extreme heat. Heat-related disasters, including the 2021 heat wave, are extremely costly. The economic and human cost of rising temperatures and the long road to recovery. We have built a new bridge on the Coquihalla every 100 days. The new and improved Coquihalla Highway and how there's still more work to be done. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. We'll have those stories for you in a moment, but we begin tonight with breaking news. A new wildfire burning near Armstrong is forcing dozens of families from their homes. The fire was first spotted just after two this afternoon and is classified as out of control. It's believed it was caused by a lightning strike. It's burning on Grandview Mountain above Highway 97A near Otter Lake. And in the last hour, more than 30 homes on Round Lake Road, Grandview Flats Road and Highway 97A were placed under an evacuation order. So far, the fire is just over a hectare in size and a number of air and ground resources are responding. Now, because of conditions out there, campfire bans are now in effect for most of the province. The ban began at noon today in almost all of the coastal fire center, including the lower mainland and Vancouver Island. And the ban joins others covering pretty much all of B.C., with the exception of Haida Gwaii. There is one positive note in the wildfire fight in this province right now. Knox Mountain Park in Kelowna is open to pedestrians and cyclists once again after fire, after a fire closure rather, that lasted almost a week. City crews and contractors have been through the fire-affected area, removing trees that might be at risk of falling, assessing trails and making sure the park is safe. Park visitors should avoid the burned areas and stay on the trails. Knox Mountain Drive will remain closed to vehicle traffic due to ongoing dry conditions and the heightened fire risk. Well, more than two years after the stabbing attack at a North Vancouver library that left one woman dead and six other people with serious injuries, the man who pleaded guilty stood up in court today to speak to his victims and their families. Our Troy Charles is covering the sentencing hearing and joins us tonight from the courthouse. What did Yannick Bandago have to say for himself today? Yeah, Sophie wearing a dark blue suit with his hands cuffed in front of him. Yannick Bendago apologized directly by name to each one of his victims and their loved ones. Reading from a prepared statement, the French-speaking Bendago referenced a past of drug use, violence and mental health issues that led up to that fateful day outside the Lynn Valley Public Library. Bendago did not provide any motive or give insight to what was going through his mind moments before the stabbing spree. He spoke about leaving his family in Quebec, but his problems followed him. In Ontario, he became addicted to crack and crystal meth, causing his mental health issues to worsen. He became incapable of asking for help and felt he could not change his destiny. A statement from Bendago's mother was also read by the defense. She explained her son's troubled past, dealing with addiction and many psychotic episodes saying he left Quebec without telling his family and they did not hear from him for over a year. Bendago said, My nightmare became the nightmare of innocent people who did not deserve to be mixed up in my personal problems. 
their lives will be forever scarred by those tragic events for which I am solely responsible. No one else in the world can be blamed for my actions. I am sorry. He was homeless at that time, and I think that simply the, the fact that he ended up on the North Shore uh, is a matter of coincidence. Got on the, uh, the public transit, he ended up at the end of the road, and uh, that's how he likely was in, uh, uh, in North Vancouver. And I think what we've seen with these three days uh, in court is what an emotionally charged situation it has been and continues to be. In pleading guilty to second-degree murder, Bendago will face a mandatory life sentence and a joint proposal from the Crown and Defence recommend he not be eligible for parole for 15 years. And Sophie, the judge has set a date for August 31st for when Bendago will learn his fate. Back to you. Troy Charles reporting live tonight. Troy, thank you. Well, we are seeing for the first time video of the arrest of the man who's on trial for the 2017 murder of a Burnaby teenager. Aaron MacArthur has more on that and testimony today on the panic among the victim's family members. Heartbreaking testimony today in the trial of Ibrahim Ali. The jury hearing based on cell phone records of a family desperate to reach their daughter on the day she went missing, making dozens of phone calls and sending dozens of texts, all of which went unanswered. The jury also hearing testimony from police officers this week who performed the arrest of the man accused of first-degree murder. Video played for the jury in June was released to the public this week. It shows Ali being booked in at the Burnaby RCMP detachment. The video shows the suspect, still in handcuffs, approach the desk before he's moved off and searched for several minutes. Officers removed his boots, took off his belt, and removed other personal items. The jury heard Friday morning from an expert in cell phone records. The Crown's theory is that Ali and the teenaged victim, who can't be identified due to a publication ban, were strangers to one another. And while her family was desperate to reach her, Crown attempted to show that the phone numbers associated to the suspect were never found on the teen's cell phone. Crown alleges that Ali sexually assaulted the girl and strangled her in Central Park in July of 2017. Ali has pleaded not guilty to the charge of first-degree murder. The trial over the next few days will focus on cell phone records as Crown attempts to prove its case. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. The VPD is looking for help to identify a man who may have information about an armed robbery and forcible confinement at a Vancouver nightclub. Two suspects entered a Yaletown nightclub after hours April 9th. Police say they threatened staff with a gun and a knife and stole $25,000 in cash. Officers say the six victims then had their hands zap-strapped and one sustained a life-altering injury. Police are looking for this man who they believe was there. There was no public safety risk. Uh, there still is no public safety risk. Uh, but now we have uh, acquired more information and we believe that this person, the image that we're releasing, has information that will allow us to advance the investigation. Police have already identified suspects, but say they're looking to speak to this man as a witness. Anyone with information is asked to call VPD. 
The family of Jared Laundes is suing Campbell River RCMP two years after the Indigenous man was shot and killed by Mounties. The 38-year-old Wet'suwet'en man was fatally shot in a police-involved incident in the parking lot at a Tim Hortons in Campbell River. Police say they were trying to stop Laundes on an outstanding warrant, but he tried to flee. A police dog was sent after him. There was an altercation and the police dog was stabbed to death and the handler was injured. That's when shots were fired. In December of last year, BC's police watchdog found reasonable grounds for charges against the three RCMP officers. Another industry critical to BC's economy is joining the chorus calling for an end to the port strike. As workers get ready to hit the picket lines for an eighth day, the forestry sector fears losing billions of dollars of product and damaging its international export relationships. Richard Zussman reports. It's a sign of a lack of progress. Cargo ships, in this case forestry products, stuck at sea. Forestry companies left to suffer. Over the short term, some of the companies are managing things by just stocking up the inventories, but that, that can't last for very long. Um, if, it, if the strike goes on, that's going to end up having major a uh, major issue. The strike at BC ports has hit a week. BC's forestry sector now joining in a chorus of voices, asking senior levels of government to step in and do something. Forestry employs 50,000 people directly in B.C. Wood products represent 15% of all cargo flowing through the port of Vancouver. More than $5 billion in product a year shipped across the ocean to Asia. They get nervous. They, they want to make sure that they have that stable, consistent supply. Some forestry products can be stocked up or moved to the United States by rail, but pulp can't. And this means the ongoing strike may soon mean forestry workers are out of a job. Pulp, it's, it's mostly going to China. And so in terms of the alt, alternative uh, markets, uh, it's, it's more difficult for pulp. The International Longshore and Warehouse Union Canada and their employers are still a long way apart. But they are working with mediators. Senior B.C. government officials are concerned about how long this is dragged on. What I've heard recently is both the union and the employer are saying let's get back to the table uh, and that seems to me that they should take each other up uh, on their offer and, and do exactly that. The strike has potentially disrupted nearly five billion dollars in cargo since it started. The opposition BC United says the time for pleading is over. I think that for most British Columbians that are in business uh, they don't like to be held hostage. And until something is done these boats will just keep near shore with nowhere to go. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. A new report is painting a bleak picture of the costs of future extreme heat events, both human and financial. Kristen Robinson has the sobering numbers and what the report says the B.C. government must do to limit the damage. An unprecedented heat wave in the summer of 2021 saw record high temperatures stifle much of the province for days. A graphic illustration in a new report commissioned by the B.C. government shows just how hot it was compared to the rest of North America. On June 27, two years ago, temperatures climbed more than 15 degrees above the average for previous years. 619 heat-related deaths were recorded from June 25th to July 1st. When you take that information and you look forward and, and look at the types of heat waves British Columbia may experience in the future, the, the projections of, of the, the number of deaths that that will cause are quite shocking. The Canadian Climate Institute studied the human and financial costs of the deadliest disaster in provincial history. 
Without any action, its modeling suggests by 2030, extreme heat could kill an average 1,370 people each year and send 6,000 to hospital, at a potential cost of at least 100 million in health care and more than 12 billion in life lost annually. We cannot ignore that 2021 in BC showed us that many parts of Canada are vulnerable to extreme heat, are not prepared to protect their communities and, and their residents yet. The report says the BC government needs to adapt its critical infrastructure decision-making and build extreme heat risk into roads and power systems. The province of British Columbia has been a leader, first of all, in building climate resilient infrastructure. There's going to be a lot more uh, things that uh, provinces like ours need to do as we see uh, a changing climate. And uh, this report speaks to some of that. The health ministry says it's made several improvements to BC's ability to deal with extreme heat, including a $10 million program announced last month to provide free air conditioners to the most vulnerable. We have to accelerate everything we're doing to protect people from extreme heat as quickly as possible because the next heat wave could occur at any time, as we're seeing across the country right now. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Well, the Coquihalla has reached a milestone in reconstruction after the historic flooding of 2021. A new bridge opened today south of Merritt, one of 20 sites washed out during the atmospheric river events. A tour of the new and improved highway and how it's being rebuilt for extreme weather. Next on the News Hour. There's no cure anymore. I cannot be cured at this point. There's only a way to live with it. Holding out hope for the cancer drug that could extend his life and why it's not covered by MSP. That's later on the News Hour. Plus extreme flooding in Spain, the 10-minute storm that did all this damage. That's still to come. Right now, though, the province has unveiled a new bridge on the Coquihalla today, marking a significant step forward in recovery after the historic flooding of 2021. Our Julie Nolan got a look at the new highway today. Julie. Sophie, the new bridge opened at 3 o'clock this afternoon, marking the reconstruction project along the Coquihalla Highway as halfway complete. Officials say the bridges are designed to withstand extreme weather events. After more than a year and a half of temporary fixes, the permanent structure for the southbound lanes of the Juliet Bridge is now complete. This, in many respects, is going to be a brand new highway at the most critical pinch points that, that failed. Uh, in weather that we never anticipated. That weather was the atmospheric river that caused catastrophic flooding in late 2021, damaging 20 sites along 130 kilometers of the Coquihalla Highway. The Juliet is one of the bridges that either completely collapsed or was severely damaged. It replaces a temporary bridge that kept traffic flowing just weeks after the devastation. It was a testament to their work that the Coquihalla was reopened 35 days later, prior to Christmas. Nobody ever thought that was possible. But it was possible, and so was the speed of this construction and the durability of the new permanent bridges. Structures that are now built with these pile footings that go more than 30 meters into the ground and bedrock. But it's also really about the world-class road builders that we have in British Columbia, the, the work that district ministry staff have been doing, um, unions that have stepped up to help uh, working hand-in-hand uh, hand with contractors. An incredible feat of engineering these bridges not only allow for more water underneath and to withstand erosion, but also room for wildlife. This is their land and we should let them 
roam. Otherwise, they keep trying to get on the highways. This is thanks to cultural consultations with local First Nations. Hundreds of workers have come from around the province to finish the work. I drive over right now with my kids, and so being a part of the reconstruction of these bridges is, is a really neat thing to be able to say, hey guys, I, <laughs> I built this bridge. One bridge is built every 100 days along this stretch at a cost of $350 million, and most of the funding is yet to come from the federal government. The transportation minister says it shows the rest of Canada how to get the job done. The permanent rebuild uh, is, is, is something uh, yet still to behold in terms of how well built it is. And they, these are the new standards. The, this is how we have to build things in British Columbia uh, going forward. The rest of the work to repair the damage will continue on through the end of the year. Because it's still an active construction zone, drivers are reminded to slow down and watch for changing traffic patterns. Back to you, Sophie. All right, thanks for that, Julie Nolan, on the Coquihalla today. Well, the Subasit First Nation in Cowichan Valley and the B.C. government have signed an agreement transferring land back to the nation. The signing happened this morning at the shores of Lake Cowichan. The treaty facilitates the transfer of, 30, of a 31-hectare crown land parcel known as District Lot 27. Both parties say this is an important milestone in reconciliation. It's taken a while to get to where we're at now, but uh, through a lot of perseverance and, and working with collaboratively with the province, uh, our team and their team together, we were able to come up with an agreement that has been a long time coming, but definitely something that we're, we're celebrating and, and great joy today. This is the kind of uh, transformative step, although it's not a, anything like a full uh, solution that we'll be continuing to build over the course of time. It is an important uh, interim and, and, and step that will make a real difference in the lives of your people. The land is valued at around $1.6 million. Up next, the Canadian economy keeps on confounding expectations. This is an economy that's just been allowed to run too hot for too long. And why the latest jobs numbers could tip the scales for another interest rate hike. Plus, why advocates say a long-awaited increase to BC's shelter allowance isn't nearly enough. For the first time in more than 15 years, BC's shelter allowance is increasing, going from $375 a month up to $500. It's a top-up to cover housing expenses for individuals on social assistance. But with inflation on the rise, advocates say the increase doesn't go far enough. Travis Prasad reports. An unexpected medical condition left Isaac Nelson in a wheelchair last year. Unable to work, the 62-year-old was forced to be frugal while making less money on social assistance. But the first little while, I did sweat because I'm thinking, like, what do I do with this? And then I made some adjustments, uh, very careful with budgeting. Uh, if I go for groceries or buy anything, I buy it on sale. But there are very few deals or discounts when it comes to housing in this province. To help keep a roof over their heads, people on income and disability assistance have access to a shelter rate. Since 2007, a single person has been eligible for a maximum shelter rate of $375 per month. But the allowance is increasing to $500 per month, the first change to the rate in more than 15 years. I mean, it's, it's a step in the right direction. According to Rentals.ca, the average rent for a one-bedroom unit in Vancouver is $2,831 a month. Pair that with inflation driving up the cost of groceries and other goods, and some say a $125 top-up is a drop in the bucket. 
this amount has has not kept up with with the demand, uh, with the increase in prices and just the need that's here. Matthew Smedley's charity helps find employment for people on the downtown east side where rental vacancy is below 1%. The Minister of Social Development and Poverty Reduction was not available for comment. Her ministry acknowledging the challenges of inflation and a tight housing market, saying through provincial investments there are more than 17,000 BC housing funded new homes underway. With these kinds of policies, it's a good idea to peg the rate to either inflation or average rental prices so that as rent increases go up, people's shelter allowance also goes up. At the very least, Smedley wants the rate reviewed every year. As opposed to waiting for another 15 years uh, to make a, a change that's not quite adequate. Every dollar makes a big difference. Absolutely. Travis Prasad, Global News. New data from Statistics Canada shows the Bank of Canada's efforts to slow the economy aren't working. Mackenzie Gray has more from Ottawa on how the country's labour market is performing and what it means for interest rates. The Canadian economy is still running at a torrid pace, with the latest jobs numbers doubling expectations, setting a five-month high. 60,000 new jobs in Canada is it's, it's a very big number. That's always going to be representative of a strong labor market in Canada. But that strong market did take one small hit. The unemployment rate jumped slightly to 5.4%, the highest level in a year, thanks in large part to new Canadians. We have lots of immigration coming to Canada. People are looking for work. So strong job gains, just not enough to absorb all of the new entrants into the labor market. The hot jobs market and inflation that's still above the Bank of Canada's 2% target has increased the chances for yet another interest rate hike from Governor Tiff Macklem. This is an economy that's just been allowed to run too hot for too long. And the Bank of Canada is, is on the scene. They've put a fire hose on the economy. It's just taking a little while to, a little while to, to get all the flames out. Money markets are predicting the bank will increase interest rates by 25 basis points next week. That would send mortgage rates to their highest level in a generation. Probably by the end of next week, they're going to be at a point we haven't seen for 15 years in terms of high rates. 93% of new mortgages are fixed rates, so borrowing costs won't impact most households immediately. But when they have to renew, they could see an up to 40% increase on what they send to the bank. As these renewals progress, as more people are faced with higher rate renewals, eventually there's some people are going to sell their homes. This will increase inventory, hopefully. And with an increase in inventory, house prices could start to decrease, a potential change in trend after most major markets in Canada have seen sharp price increases in the first half of 2023. Mackenzie Gray, Global News, Ottawa. Up next, fighting for his life. I cannot accept that uh, this is over soon. The cancer drug that could extend his life and why MSP won't pay for it. Also ahead, another hospital hit by staffing shortages. The impact over the rest of the summer. BC's big news. The 2023 Canadian Screen Awards have named Global News Hour at 6 the country's best local newscast. Thank you, BC, for making Global News Hour at 6 your choice for news. A Vancouver man living with cancer is now paying out of pocket for a drug he hopes will extend his life. The medication costs about $10,000 a month, but as Paul Johnson reports, he won't have to shoulder the cost alone for much longer. I've been told I have a couple of uh, weeks, maybe months, and uh, yeah, and we are hoping just to extend this a little bit more. 
Whatever challenges you're dealing with this summer, chances are it's pretty small compared to what Ronnie Brukowski is facing. I was diagnosed about one year ago. Initially thinking he had COVID, it turned out Ronnie had an aggressive form of leukemia. Two rounds of chemo and then a bone marrow transplant failed to stop it. A few weeks ago, he was given this crushing news. There's no cure anymore. I cannot be cured at this point. There's only a way to live with it. And it turns out there is a drug that could give him more time. But it's 10 grand a month to be on it. Well, his doctors were willing to give it a shot, the provincial health system had a different take. Ronnie says they turned down his application to fund that treatment. The reason given, almost as staggering as the diagnosis itself. What I've been told is I'm simply too young. We brought Ronnie's story to Health Minister Adrian Dix Friday. Though sympathetic, he said ministers almost never overrule a decision by medical staff. Obviously, um, this case, as you described it, is a really significant and difficult case for the family and for the person involved. And uh, that's why it's so important that when we make decisions about, like this, that we, uh, that we uh, make those decisions best, based on the best medical evidence. Running out of options, Ronnie maxed out his credit card to pay for the first month of treatment. An online fundraising campaign has brought in enough to cover another seven months. Whatever the questions raised by his medical chart, one thing that is indisputable is Ronnie Burkowski's will to keep on living. I cannot accept that uh, this is over soon. Like We are really planning on moving on and staying, <coughs> and staying in there for as long as possible. In Vancouver, Paul Johnson, Global News. The emergency department at the Peninsula Hospital will be at Saanich Peninsula Hospital, rather, will be closed during the overnight hours for the next two months due to a staff shortage. The ER will be closed from 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. each night, starting today until September 4th. The health authority says the move is to ensure staff are available during periods of highest demand. On an average night, 11 people go to that ER and two more by ambulance. Anyone in need of emergency medical care is being told to go to Royal Jubilee Hospital or Victoria General Hospital instead. Three new crisis response teams are being created in this province. The Comox Valley, Prince George and Kamloops will now join existing teams on Vancouver's North Shore, New Westminster and Victoria. The peer-assisted care teams, known as PACTS for short, support people in crisis by meeting them where they are to provide care and help connect them to supports. The teams focus on minimal police interaction. You not only physically get on the ground, but you figuratively show up in, a, in an emotional space to break down barriers and to support someone. The reason we are there is to help somebody, and help looks a lot different um, than enforcement. In the first five months of this year, the three existing pacts responded to more than 700 calls. The province says it's in the process of selecting four more communities for pacts, as well as developing Indigenous-led crisis response teams. A freak storm washes away cars and floods basements in Spain. You won't believe how much rain fell in just 10 minutes. That's next. Plus, the Battle of the Bears caught on camera. Brawling Bruins on the Sunshine Coast. From the stories that affect us all, to 
to a look at what's happening right now around us. When BC needs to connect, BC turns to the source that brings us together. Global News. Dozens of people needed to be rescued after a flash flood tore through the streets of Zaragoza, Spain. Police were warning people to avoid unnecessary travel after 20 to 50 millimeters of rain came down in an intense 10-minute storm. The flash flooding washed cars down the road, flooded underground parkades, and halted trains traveling through the area. Luckily, no injuries have been reported. Well, we could use some of that rain. Not that much and not that fast, but Christy, we really could use some proper rain here. Absolutely. You know, Sophie, there's that new fire near Vernon and uh, there's very likely going to be numerous other fires from today. Here's a look at the satellite image showing the lightning strikes that we saw all across the province today. And we know that the fire danger rating is rated high to extreme across pretty much the entire province. So certainly a concern with all of these lightning strikes, which don't come with a ton of rainfall. Meanwhile, we have an excessive heat warning, which has been extended to now include the Caribou region, the South Thompson, as well as all the Okanagan area. So what we're expecting is temperatures not only Saturday, but particularly Sunday to be in the mid 30s, some areas even hotter than that, but very little relief from heat at night. So we're talking about high teens in the interior regions. Now, coastal regions won't be as hot, except for some areas away from the water like Port Alberni. Uh, we've also had hazy conditions today across the south coast. Uh, it wasn't as bad because of cooler conditions and some winds. In fact, the air quality advisory ended but uh, that haze is supposed to, as we head towards the end of the weekend, become a little bit more localized across the areas that have the concern or the majority of the fires with the fires of note. But that depends on how many new fires are ignited this weekend, Sophie. So a uh, risk of thunderstorms again tomorrow afternoon from the Caribou Central Interior right down through the southern interior, even along the spine of Vancouver Island. For Metro Vancouver, we're expecting some cloud cover tomorrow and temperatures at about 24, but much hotter on Sunday where areas away from the water will climb to about 28 degrees. More cloud cover into early next week and all areas across the province will see a drop in temperature Monday and into Tuesday. Sophie, I want to show you tonight's central windows weather window. This is a very rare optical uh, illusion that is created. It's called Fata Morgana and this is looking out over Mud Bay from Crescent Beach towards Tawasson and what happens is when there's an inversion off in the distance, there's actually uh, um, a refraction of the light. So that's the um, sort of Tawasin um, sky or um, landmass that you can see that is being refracted and makes it look much taller, almost tree-like off in the distance. Very rare phenomenon. Thank you to Dawn for capturing that and sending it to us. So back to you. Wow, that's cool. Thanks, Christy. Something else cool to show you now. Video of two bears in a roadside face-off on the Sunshine Coast. Chris Carlson saw the black bears Thursday morning near Inland Lake just north of Powell River. When she started to record, the bears started to brawl. Their fight continued for several minutes. Male black bears are known to fight to establish dominance over food sources and breeding. And maybe because they wanted to go viral. I think they were just showing off. 
they were probably just showing off. Yeah. So I thought we were going to you next, but no, we have one more thing to tell you about. It is no secret Vancouver's Chinatown has struggled for the past few years. But organizers of next weekend's Chinatown Festival are hoping the event will help the community. Thousands are expected to attend the festival on the 15th and 16th. There will be tours, performances, crafts and food trucks. Organizers say while they hope the festival will bring people down to check out Chinatown, they also hope it opens the door for people to see everything the neighborhood has to offer. If you're coming for the first time, come and see the festival, but also come back because that's really what it's all about. We want you to not just come to Chinatown once a year, but we want you to continue to come back. The festival is the hallmark event put on by the Vancouver Chinatown Business Improvement Area Society. This one will be its 21st year. All right, now it's you. Well, <laughs> well, you don't know, seem so excited about my presence. It's oh, now Friday. it's you. I got through it. Okay. 19 minutes left before the weekend. All right. Not that I'm counting. Okay. So. Anyway. I'll help you finish the show if you like. Well, I, think I can you're pretty much take to. it from here. Most of it, most of the rest of it is up to you now. Okay. All right. <laughs> I can help. And we'll start with what's coming up in sports, of course. Uh, the Whitecaps are playing at home tomorrow against Seattle. That's a 7.30 start. And the one thing in the MLS, you got to win your home games. We said that every time that we need to have a, an average of two points per game at home if we want to make the playoff because that way it's going to be very hard to make points. I think the only home game the Whitecaps have lost this year was their very first game of the season. They've gone nine straight at home without a loss. And still to come. I wasn't kidding when I said it's up to Squire now. Satellite debris coming up as well. Hold up your scripts like... It's like he's going to do... Pick a script, a, any script. A sports script magic trick. I'm going to do a little trick. I won't do that because I'll mess if up. If you pick a piece of paper, I bet you I can tell you what's on it. That's a trick. <laughs> well, you're looking at it, so I hope <laughs> well, so. well, you gave it away. All right, what's going on? Never give away the magician's trick. Um, well, no team in any sport is okay with losing games at home. I mean, these are your fans. They paid money to see you. You don't want to disappoint. But in Major League Soccer, since it seems that winning on the road is rare even for good teams, you pretty much have to win at home to have any chance of making the playoffs. And the Whitecaps have their next three league games all at BC Place. And they'll need wins, not draws. In 10 home games this year, the Caps have five wins, one loss, which was the first game of the year, and four draws. It's a pivotal point in the Whitecaps season with just 15 games remaining. How they perform in the next three could make or break the year. I think the expectation is to get all three points in, uh, in every game. Nine points this week. Fortunately for the Caps, the next three games are a BC place, where they are currently on a nine-match unbeaten run, just one game shy of matching a club record set in 2013. Uh, with our fans in, in our back, uh, I think we are, one, we are a unit, and that's, that's what makes it hard for, for the opponents to, to beat us. A win against Seattle on Saturday would get the team above 500 for just the third time this season. Staying above 500 has been another issue. Each time they get above that mark, a loss would follow. A congested schedule with CONCACAF Champions League, Canadian Championship, and players being called up to respective national teams have led to lineup rotations for coach Vanny Sartini. 
Yeah, probably it's more than before, but uh, I think it's a good thing because it means that the team is better than before and we have more quality players than before. They've been called in the national team and they're successful with the national team. For that reason, we have to build a team that has the depth that we can rotate because we have to. And I think that's an area where, where we have the one or the other position in the team where we are not that flexible right now. Good news for the team. Some key players will be returning to the club. After Sunday's Gold Cup quarterfinal between Canada and the U.S., the team will be getting either Ali Ahmed or Julian Gressel back early next week. And heading into Saturday's match against Seattle, the Caps welcome the return of Brian White, Tristan Blackman, and Russell Tybert. All three were dealing with injuries and missed last week's match in Kansas City. The fact that we beat them this year so far, uh, they're going to be fired up to come here and want to get a result, so we have to be ready um, from the first minute until 95th. Um, but I think it's going to be a good showing. Everybody's looking good in training, so excited. The BC Lions are home to Montreal 4 o'clock on Sunday, so it's a busy weekend at BC Place. It's good they get a game so soon after that disaster in Toronto, a chance to uh, take the bad taste out of their mouths. Obviously, what cost the Lions that game against the Argos was Vernon Adams throwing six interceptions. Even BC's exceptional defense couldn't keep the Lions from losing that game. But before the ball was given away like prizes on a game show, BC's defense actually was not doing too badly against the Argos. And they feel that they are still one of the best defenses in the league. Uh, we're playing lights out, and that's the thing. We're still playing lights out. Um, it was a field position, you know, brutal field position game for us against Toronto. That's rarely ever going to happen. Um, but outside of that, we held good. Uh, we just got to limit those touchdowns to kicks when we're in a bad field position and, you know, keep rolling. Three new Canucks know their numbers. Teddy Bluger will stay with the number he's had. That's 53, of course, the one Bo Horvat used to have. No other Canuck has had that number besides Bluger and Horvat. The other two signings both had the same number last year, 28. So the older guy got to keep his. Ian Cole will wear 28 for the Canucks. He's 34. He's won a couple of Canucks, so... He gets 28. That means Carson Soucy will now wear number seven. He was wearing 28 when he was in Seattle. He is the 19th player to wear seven in Canucks history, but only the third defenseman to wear number seven for the Vancouver Canucks. A couple of Canadians in singles action at Wimbledon today, and both won. Denis Shapovalov won, and so did Bianca Andreescu. And this is a great point for her as she defeated Annalena Kalinina. Kalinina, make that. Uh, in three sets. So she will face Owens Jabour in the next round at Wimbledon. She's in the far court, of course. And, and there. Did a lot of running for that point. She's on to the next round at Wimbledon. And finally, Alec Manoa back with the Blue Jays after being sent to the minors to get his game in shape. One and seven coming into this one against the Tigers. The Tigers are not a very good team, so it's a good game for Manoa to play and get his confidence up. He had eight strikeouts, played six innings for Toronto, and Toronto had a huge fourth inning. They scored six in the fourth. Danny Jansen's double brings in two, and then George Springer hits one to the left field seats, and Toronto wins this easy for their fourth straight, 12-2 over Detroit. Magical sportscast, thank you. Thank you very much. And stick around, he's got satellite debris. For oh yes, I have that too. Next, all sorts of all right, Jordan Armstrong now with a look ahead to Global News at 11, and you've got a lot going on, Jordan. We certainly do, Sophie. We'll start off in the capital region where a fire is burning at this hour. We have a live shot to show you from atop the Hotel Grand Pacific. 
you might be able to see the Johnson Street Bridge just in the foreground there. We don't know exactly what's burning, but the smoke seems to be coming from the Bay Street area just off the Upper Harbor. We do have a crew on the way to that fire and we'll have the very latest at 11. And speaking of fires, two dozen firefighters and three helicopters are battling flames east of Stave Lake in the Fraser Valley. The Davis Lake fire is burning in steep terrain and it's believed to be human caused. At this point, no properties are threatened, but the fire is growing at this hour, estimated at 38 hectares. We will be back for Global News at 11. Sophie. Lots to cover for sure. All right. Thanks for that, Jordan. And as I mentioned, it's Friday, so that means it's satellite debris time. Yes, and we all have heard the saying, oh, that'll happen when pigs fly. Mm -hmm. Virgin Media says that'll happen when goats fly. Wi-Fi guarantee of any major provider. Virgin Media. I know I, you love it when animals do human things. I, I really want them to be able to do that. Okay, well here, I've run this before, but it's, it's a favorite, the deer kitten commercials. Here, an old cat speaks in our language. Dear kitten, you've probably noticed that there's a new thing in the house. It is called a dog. And I know this because before you, I had a best friend named Peanut. Rest in peace. At first, I assumed Peanut was just a very ugly cat. Charming in his own way, but terrible breath. Awful. So, kitten, here are some things that you need to know. The dog is the sort of creature that will decide whether it should put something in its mouth by putting it in its mouth. That's the level of decision-making that goes on. They basically eat everything. Case in point, butt paper. They even eat those weird brown dehydrated pip nuggets that the humans give us. Don't get mad. Let the dog eat all of our dry food. If it gets caught, it gets put in jail. And right then, we can enjoy the moist deliciousness of the can without interruption. It's a gambit. I love those. <laughs> Okay, um, mm -hmm. now I showed you this uh, earlier on Monday. I won't show you right away, though. Here's two types of bat flips in sports. And we're going to start with a gentleman named Sam Reynolds, who's on a bicycle. He's going to do a bat flip. This is at Dark Fest 2023. Dark Fest. Yes, so this is, not a, this is obviously not a back flip, but this is. This is a back flip. But this back flip was planned Yikes. and executed. This next backflip by Dustin Eccles was not planned, but it was also executed perfectly, even though it wasn't planned. 
He sticks the landing. This is at a hydroplane race in Indiana on the weekend. There's another look. This is, uh, there you see him in the, uh, behind the other two boats flipping. But here's the view from the fin on his boat. And you can see when it starts to take air, and it's like a plane lifting off. And then it just does the full flip, or the blowover as they like to say, lands, the boat will stop. They took him to hospital, the driver, but he's okay. So there you go. Two wow. types of backflips to finish up on Friday. <laughs> I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often with those boats. Well, sometimes air does I get underneath thinking... them because those things are lit they're not really in the water half the time. They're sort of bouncing on top of the water. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, there you go. Amazing. All right, Christy, uh, what does our weekend look like? It's going to be hot. Yes, it certainly is. Uh, for the interior regions for the next two days, the south coast won't be quite as hot uh, for areas near the water tomorrow, but we certainly will feel the heat on Sunday, Sophie. And then all areas will see a drop in temperature on Monday and Tuesday. So it's really just two days of heat. But with the number of fires that now are now being ignited, that is a bit of concerning for sure. So make sure you're so careful. We don't need any unnecessary fires. Exactly. Never look forward to a Monday so much, but 21 degrees sounds so much more pleasant. All right, have a great weekend, everyone. Good night, all.